This show is made possible entirely by the support of listeners like you. In fact, if you became a member or made a donation to the show, I would be talking about you. And if you already have, then I am. Anyways, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Citizen Radio, The Young Turks, The Progressive, The Daily Show, and The Rachel Maddow Show with a bonus clip today for our iPhone app users from The Daily Show. This episode does contain strong language, but it's about war. You really shouldn't expect anything less. This was pointed out to me by Jason Ball, who was hosting this radio show, is he's like, well, another criticism, though, is that sometimes the left were too accepting. And I know that sounds horrible because that's one of the things that that's one of our founding principles is to accept everybody. But we need to acknowledge as well that besides just these Islamic extremists, there are some pretty stern principles in Islam that aren't too great, that are pretty sexist, that are pretty homophobic. And I feel like because, again, maybe it's just because we see Glenn Beck and these crazy assholes criticizing Islam, we feel like we can't do it either. You know, like there, there, there were times where you would watch George Bush speak and George Bush would be like, I'm, a, you know, we need to stop the Taliban throwing acid in girls' faces who want to go to school. And then I'm watching that, and it's George Bush, and suddenly I'm thinking, like, does that mean I'm for throwing acid in little girls' faces? Yeah, it was interesting. We just had journalist Johan Hari on our show, and he was talking about Islam. And at, at one point, he had this little strange caveat I thought it was strange at the time where he said, you know, I, I detest the Taliban. I hate the Taliban. And at the time I was thinking, you know, Johan doesn't have to say that. We all know he detests the Taliban. But now I don't think people do know that. I think because of the reasons you just said, they think the default position of rejecting George W. Bush and his crazy policies of imperialism and now President Obama's policies of imperialism is that you are somehow pro-Taliban. I hate the Taliban. I hate all religious extremists. You know, I hate religion itself. I think religions of any ilk are retarded. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, and also, I mean, when you think about it, when you hear these Israel-Palestine debates and someone goes, hey, so Israel just targeted a school and blew up 20 civilians. That's not good. And they're like, so I guess you love Hamas. <laughs> And it's like, no, I don't love Hamas. Hamas wasn't there. I don't like Hamas. And they're like, well, if you're mad that Israel blew up that school, then why don't you marry Hezbollah? And it's like, no, these are totally different things. But that's how the arguments go. So what the left has to do is – all right, so here's what both parties have to do is we need to kind of team up because there are a lot – of things we have in common. So atheists, if they really want to prevent people becoming religious extremists, they have to be honest with themselves and identify that, yeah, a lot of it is because of the crazy religious talk, but a lot of the recruitment of moderates or even secular people happens because war crimes are being perpetrated by the West and Osama bin Laden and all these people have to do is hold up a picture of a dead Palestinian baby and point to America or Israel, these really rich countries, and they're like, they're coming in and killing your people. And fuck yeah, that's going to piss some people off. And if somebody with a gun showed up and was like, well, I'll protect you, I don't know what I would do in that situation. I don't think any of you would know what you would do in that situation. But then on the same, on the same token, the left can't be accepting of these. We have to be intelligent. We can't just be the like, everybody's welcome. You know what happens when everybody's welcome? Nothing. Because people are just running around in circles, not knowing what to do. Like, we need to be like, hey, Islam, stop. Stop throwing shit at women. Right. And at the same time, I think everybody, every adult has to acknowledge that there will always be a degree of danger in the world. There will always be a group of bad people who inexplicably, even if the U.S. tomorrow stopped their imperialist agenda, brought home all of the troops, all of the troops, even the ones in Germany who are still there, brought everybody home, made peace with the world, cleaned up the environment, did everything it was supposed to do, there would probably still be a group of crazy people out there that were plotting to blow up the West because they let women wear whatever they want and they accept gay people. Right. We have to acknowledge that as adults, we can never be 100% safe. And, it, and you shouldn't let the state infringe on your liberties in order to try to obtain this unobtainable 100% certitude that you will not be harmed by a crazy person. I want fear gone. Well, Barack <laughs> Obama, will you get rid of all fear? 
and nightmares. <laughs> Sometimes when I go to sleep, bad things happen. Can you fix that? I am staunchly anti-nightmare. I am, I'm going to run on an anti-nightmare. Uh, no, I'm going to run on an... Allison and I are going to co-run for president on a anti-bad things platform. That was sweet that you didn't make me the vice president. We're going to be co-presidents. We're going to be co-presidents. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. so we're going to... We're gonna we're gonna run on an anti bad things platform. Maybe next week we can cut together a commercial. Right now we don't know how to do fucking anything on new pod computer Roger. Let's see, I'm anti ghosts. I'm anti Right, okay. I I'm against I'm against tears. Nice. Unless they're tears of joy. That's how I'm bipartisan. Mm-hmm. I'm for tears of joy, but I'm against tears of sadness. I'm anti Fallen ice cream cones. Ooh, that's a good one. Thank you. I'm anti-withered balloons. All balloons under my watch will be inflated, red, and joyful. I think we're gonna win this thing. I think I, I honestly think we could. Question. That's a sad thing. Yeah. What are we running for again? We are running for president of the presidents of the United States. Oh, we got this. On the J.B. Kilstein and Allison Kilkenny are against bad things. Mm-hmm. We could wait. Look, people didn't think the Church of the Smiling Vagina would take off, and it is taking off. Blankies for everyone. Blank, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just uh, food. We'll give you food. We would... <laughs> why do people raise so much money on for, like, these fancy commercials? All you have to do is be like, there's a buffet, and people would be like, oh, <laughs> and just storm the place. Just fucking free food. Maybe lottery tickets. Sure. Why the hell not? You have lottery tickets? Anytime somebody asks a question... I'll say, can I answer you with a statement? And they'll say, yes. And I'll say, you're right. And I'll follow up, and how'd you get so handsome? And then we will win by a fucking landslide. Landslide. Against bad things, pro, hey, are you handsome? Now, this is a very, very sad story. A 19-year-old Bibi Aisha of Afghanistan was married off to some Taliban fighter. And she didn't want to be married to him. She didn't agree to that. This was a while back now. And uh, they shipped her off to be with his family. He was out fighting in Pakistan. Then he comes back, and she decides that she's going to uh, run away because she never agreed to this. And this is, it, it was to settle basically a debt that her dad had. By the way, I mean, stay classy, San Diego. Stay classy, Kandahar. Uh, you run into some debt, so you sell your daughter to the Taliban. Great move there. So since she ran away, they uh, eventually two women said they were going to help her. Instead, they tricked her, and they delivered her back into the uh, hands of her n- new co- so-called family. And guess what they decided to do to her? Uh, they cut off her nose and her ears. And be careful here. We're going to show you the picture if you're watching online. Um, it's gruesome. And uh, here is uh, 19-year-old BB uh, Aisha. Now, look, that's why when, you know, people say, let's fight the Taliban, I, my inclination is, hell yes, let's fight the Taliban. I mean, these are six sons of... You know what uh, they said, why they cut her uh, nose and ears off? And the bottom of her ears, they cut the top of the ear off, and you can obviously see if you're watching online again uh, how they cut her nose off, uh, because she had shamed them. It appears to me that that's the real shame here is not what she did, obviously. It's what you sick animals are doing. Now, the thing is, when I see stuff like that, it makes me want to go and kill every one of the Taliban that there is in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and said it's a natural, visceral human reaction. But we got to be smart. It, the natural re- reaction we have is not necessarily the smart one. As we showed you in, in the previous story, sometimes when we withdraw from certain areas of uh, Afghanistan, the Taliban don't get stronger, they get weaker. 
because they fight with the local tribal leaders in that valley, and eventually they get displaced. Now, that doesn't mean the only answer is withdrawal, because I don't want to leave these guys in charge. Now, and some will say it's not our battle, and that's a fair point, too. But for my purposes, what I would love to do is have a smart strategy that isn't just, oh, escalate, more troops, if that doesn't work, or, oh, complete withdrawal. If that, you know, and even if that works in some parts, maybe it doesn't work in other parts. I want to have a strategy that pulls in the local tribal leaders, et cetera, et cetera, so that we can route the Taliban together with them the best that we can as we eventually, obviously, withdraw from Afghanistan. We can't stay there forever. But God, do I want to protect the people like Bibi Aisha. And so when I see, in this case, what Muslim fundamentalists have done to her, and there are fundamentalists from every religion who are wackos. There's the ones in uh, Uganda and Nigeria that are chasing witches and killing them, killing kids and women, etc., and on and on it goes. But when I see that kind of fundamentalism, I think that's exactly what we have to fight. But we have to be smart while we're strong in fighting that. All right, so obviously we wish her the best of luck, and now she's being helped uh, by some uh, organizations, including the Women for Afghan Women uh, and, uh, and other groups trying to obviously get her out of that situation, which they have, and uh, find a better life for her. And she's apparently, according to reports, incredibly upbeat given the situation, uh, has a radiant smile and, and is looking to tackle the world. And, uh, you know, God bless her heart. President Obama showed courage in going to Afghanistan to talk to the troops, but he's just getting the U.S. in deeper over there. The rhetoric he used on Sunday was at times distorting and the thrust distressing. Like Bush, he quickly summoned the 9-11 attack, saying, we didn't choose this war. And he added, this is the region where the perpetrators of that crime, al-Qaeda, still base their leadership. That's clever phrasing to use the word region and not country, since al-Qaeda is no longer in Afghanistan, they're in Pakistan. So it's not a war against al-Qaeda anymore, and hasn't been for years, actually. It's a civil war, with the Pashtuns and the Taliban squaring off against warlords from the north and Karzai's government. But that's a harder sell, so Obama didn't even try to make it. Instead, he told the soldiers, your services are absolutely necessary, absolutely essential to America's safety and security. And he said, the U.S. doesn't quit. Once it starts on something, you don't quit. The armed services doesn't quit. We keep at it. So how does he square that rhetoric with his previous declaration that we're going to bring troops home from Afghanistan starting next summer? It's impossible for the U.S. to defeat and destroy al-Qaeda and its extremist allies in the next 16 months, though that's what Obama said our goal is. So prepare for a longer war. Obama's rhetoric guarantees it. He is also an author whose book, Beyond Fundamentalism, Confronting Religious Extremism in the Age of Globalization, is out in paperback. Please welcome back to the program, Reza Adlon. What's up? Oh, good to see you. Good to see you. How are you, brother? Good. How about that Hamid Karzai? What? what how? Our man in Afghanistan. 
Our man in Afghanistan, we're, we're, we're fighting to keep this guy in office. We've got a ring around his, uh, his, his home city. <clears throat> and now he's got the balls. What, what is he doing? Look, part of this is that a, a politician is a politician whether he's wearing a suit or a funny hat, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> he, you know, he, he's got a... You know what? It, to me, it looks like a fast food hat. You know what? There's probably something very offensive about what I just said. I feel there is. He's got a constituency in Afghanistan that he's talking to, and it's a constituency that hates the U.S., but at the same time, I mean, this is our guy. I mean, we, we put him there. We're stuck with him. There's nothing we can do. He may be in charge of a narco state. His brother may be the biggest drug trafficker in the country. Mm -hmm. But what's the, what are we going to do? He's, he's our guy. But can't we get a new guy? <laughs> that would be interesting. Look. There, we've, got, we've got this military in, the, in Afghanistan, the greatest military that this country has ever seen. A military, by the way, which after you know, nine years of war in Iraq is now a much smarter, much stronger, right. much more capable military. Yeah, I mean, a different like. military that showed up in Afghanistan nine years ago. The problem is, is that nine years ago, the Afghan people actually liked us, uh, and they didn't want the Taliban. And then... We all know the story, but I mean, at this point, we've allowed Afghanistan to devolve into a narco state, into a place where, you know, this is, this is the funny thing. There's this perception that it's the absence of a strong centralized government that is pushing people to yes, the Taliban. That is true. If you ask the people on the ground, they'll say, no, actually, the opposite is true. It's in those places in which there is a strong government presence that people are moving towards the Taliban because the government's so corrupt. They want a feudal system. They want to go back to fiefdoms where they can have just general opium lords and then they can all live in, in, in that little area. Well, look, if what we're looking for is some sort of, you know, federated Jeffersonian democracy, that Thank you. ain't, ain't going to happen. Yeah. Have uh, they read our Constitution? It's quite powerful. <laughs> it is a beautiful, beautiful document. Uh, you know, the, the entire operation, the entire plan that we had, which was obviously that we would uh, plant the flag of democracy in the Middle East, in Iraq, and uh, Afghanistan, and then it would blossom and flourish and spread like, I'm assuming, a beautiful garden. And uh, soon, the entire area would be overrun, and, and de democratic states love us, and, and it seems like we may be moving in the wrong direction. Well, I'll say this, is that we do have the manpower, the, 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 the personnel, to actually succeed in Afghanistan, whatever that actually means. But it's going to take time, maybe a decade. And it's going to take a lot of money. And the question is, is it worth it? I mean, yeah. Is it worth it? Uh, yes, we have the money and the lives and all that sort of thing. Uh, I, I'm sure as a country we could do it. The point is, exactly why are we doing this? Yeah. Because what do you do with these other failed states like Somalia? You know, can our strategy possibly be, let's go in, topple a government, and then spend the next 20 years using 100,000, 150,000 troops, all of our resources, to stabilize these areas and, and then I'm, move on to the next country. I'm going to assume that we learned some kind of lesson from the whole Iraq-Afghanistan thing. I'm not sure that we did. Can I tell you my plan? Let's hear it. You're probably the best plan so far. Leave. <laughs> we leave, and here's what we do. We leave, but we give them a forwarding address. <laughs> and we say to them, if the whole Taliban thing starts up again with Al-Qaeda, we will bomb the out of you again. Listen, I totally, I totally understand Just this sentiment. Yes. And I'm not, I'm not some, you know, pro-war no. guy at all. I will say this, though. I, you know, this has as much to do with who we are as a nation as it does with what's going on in Afghanistan. Nine years ago, we made a pledge to that country that we were going to cre create a stable and secure, maybe democratic state, that we weren't going to allow this sort of draconian, uh, bloodthirsty Taliban uh, to have their way anymore. But we didn't know. <laughs> well, we didn't know how, how hard it was going to be, but we, I mean, uh, are we going to keep that pledge? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Obviously, Americans have had enough with this war. I get it. And now with this Karzai thing. Iraq, I can understand. That was a war of choice. We went in there. As Colin Powell says, you broke it, you bought it. I understand that there is a different situation there. Afghanistan, we went in there because that's, they were the guys that were holding uh, uh, Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda and allowing them to do it. So I understand we go in there and bomb them. 
I don't understand this whole idea that when you have a war, then you have to go back after the war and be like, okay, the war's over, so what do you need fixed? <laughs> like, it doesn't seem to make sense anymore to me that this is our strategy. Yeah, nation building. I don't think that that was ever the, the goal, but, you know, it's, it's the mire that we found ourselves in. And, uh, you know, I, I just, I wish, look, if I had the answer, if anybody has the answer, email me. <laughs> but you have a book. I have the, the book. Because I'm it's... even tired of this, the power of our ideas. I know we have this whole thing now, we have to win them with our ideas. I'm at a certain point now where I'm like, you know what? It. Like, how hard is our idea? It's democracy. One man, one vote. You get it. You don't get it. Like, that's not a hard thing to grasp. You're not down with that? Yeah, except that we're not fighting just ideas. What we're fighting is this conception in that region and also here in the United States right. that there is this kind of global religious dimension to this, that it's not just about land, it's not just about territory. This is what the whole book is about, is that it's about, like, is my God, my God can kick your God's ass. That's what I'm that's saying. Whole, it's about irrationality. And irrationality, I have come to understand, cannot be fought with empirical evidence. If you don't believe President Obama was born in this country, seeing his birth certificate ain't going to help you. You're going to look at it and go, Times Roman font, that wasn't available. Like, it's not about that anymore. At a certain point, you know what? You throw up your hands and you go, you don't want democracy? F*** it, don't take it. You don't want to be in America? F*** it, go settle your own state. John Stewart for president. What? Actually, I don't think they let Jews be president. <laughs> I don't think they do let Jews be president. I don't think so. I think even Israel is rethinking that. <laughs> Beyond fundamentalism, it's on the bookshelves now. The Great Resolution. If I was president, uh -huh. I'd get elected on Friday, assassinated on Saturday, buried on Sunday, they go back to work on Monday. If I was president, if I was president, was president yeah. instead of spending billions on the war i can use that money so i can feed the poor because i know some so poor when it rains that's when they shower scream and fight the power that's when the vulture devours if i was president let's go to alan grayson i mentioned iraq and afghanistan this guy continues to go on the war path. Now, as you hear him talking about uh, what happened in the wars and how we got to come home, once again, the logic is nearly so impeccable that you think, what the hell is going on in Congress? How could people not see this if they actually cared about logic, reason, and sense? Clip number three. Madam Speaker, I have good news. The good news is this. We won the war in Afghanistan. Now, it happened a while ago, so I may be the only person who actually remembers this. But after the 9-11 attack, within three months, we had expelled, expelled the Taliban government. And we did so with the use of only 1,000 U.S. Special Forces troops. Within four months, we had expelled al-Qaeda from Afghanistan. And if you don't believe me about that, you can listen to General Petraeus, who said a year ago, that al-Qaeda isn't in Afghanistan anymore. I have more good news about Iraq. The news is we won. We won the war in Iraq years and years ago. Facing the fourth largest army in the entire world, we swept through Iraq, and within three weeks we had deposed the Saddam Hussein government. We won. Now we can go home. In fact, we could have gone home a long time ago. What's happening now in Afghanistan, what's happening now in Iraq, you can't even call it a war. It's a foreign occupation. And you could read the Constitution from beginning to end, and you'll find nothing in the Constitution that permits or authorizes a foreign occupation, much less one that goes on for almost a decade. We simply can't afford these wars anymore, both in the price of money and in the price of blood. I'd like to call your attention to a report in the New England Journal of Medicine, dated January 31, 2008. This report says that 15% of all the troops that, that serve in Iraq return with permanent brain damage. That's right, permanent brain damage. Here's some of the symptoms described. A loss of consciousness, general poor health, missed work days, 
medical visits, and a high number of somatic and post-concussive symptoms. Later on in the report, on page 459, this report says, in this study, nearly 15% of soldiers reported an injury during deployment that involved a loss of consciousness or altered mental state. These soldiers define as having what is euphemistically referred to as mild traumatic brain injury were significantly more likely to report high combat exposure and a blast mechanism of injury than were the 17% of soldiers who reported other injuries. So, Mr. President, when you say that you're sending 50,000 more to Afghanistan, what you're really saying is that you are condemning 7,500 young Americans to live for the rest of their lives with brain damage. That's what you're really saying. And beyond that, we've spent over $3 trillion on the war in Iraq. That's over $10,000 for every man, woman, and child in this country, over $70,000 for my family of seven. And for what? What have we accomplished in 2010 that we could not have accomplished in 2009 or 2008 or 2007 or 2006? In fact, what have you heard from the other side today that they couldn't have said back then and they'll want to say next year and the year after that? Now think about this. Our total national wealth is only $50 trillion. We've spent $3 trillion, 6% of that, 6% of that on the war in Iraq. That kind of economic damage is something that could not have possibly been accomplished by al-Qaeda himself. Osama bin Laden on his best day couldn't have done anything like that. He would have had to vaporize all of New England to come close. Listen, we are the most powerful nation on earth. Nobody can force us out of Iraq. Nobody can force us out of Afghanistan. We have to make that decision ourselves. But remember, we need only not, not only strength, but we need wisdom. We need to know that the worst things that happen to us as a country are the things that we do to ourselves, including these two wars. Thank you very much. Alan Grayson made a small fortune as a lawyer. He's a very good lawyer. What he does is he picks certain damning points and he emphasizes and re-emphasizes them. He will say over and over, that's right, permanent brain damage. Right, And so he takes two points there and emphasizes it. One, with the 50,000 new troops going in, 7,500 of them will have permanent brain damage because of that decision of Obama to escalate the war in Afghanistan. That's right, permanent brain damage. Okay, and then the second thing he does is he emphasizes $10,000 per person for every man, woman, and child. That's what it costs us, these wars. Now, was it worth $10,000 of your money to do that? Was it worth 6% of our economy to do this? Well, when you look at it that way, huh, uh, the, Mr. Grayson makes a very, very compelling point, right? And that look, in the end, you know, when you look at the micro picture, and I look at it day to day, and I say, well, I could see this side, and I could see that side. And I, I, I'm not a doctrinarian in this, and I think, and you know, I recently switched over on Afghanistan. But before then, I thought we should stay. And part of my naivete is that, and maybe it's not naivete, maybe it's an idealism that's, that's hopefully beneficial in the long run, that, that we can help these countries, that we do have some obli obligation to them after invading them, that we shouldn't leave them a mess, et cetera, et cetera. But the longer this goes on, the macro picture, the bigger picture, looks like, well, we just, what we have is a semi-permanent occupation here. And they tell you one year that, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. Uh, we got to stay another year. And when you look back, you go, what, what did we do in that year that we couldn't have done this year or, or vice versa? And what are we going to do next year that's so much better? Now, part of the reason I bring that up is because right now there's another article in Time Magazine by Peter Beinart saying, no, you don't understand. As much as I'd love to leave Iraq, we can't. Now, Peter Beinart is a guy that they uh, put out there as a so-called liberal who is, uh, you know, advocates the pro-war position 98% of the time. He was one of the leading uh, so-called liberals that were in favor of the Iraq war in the first place. And that, they need guys like Peter Beinart because then, then they turn and go, look, everybody agrees. The Republicans agree and the liberals agree. Look, we got Peter Beinart saying we should have this war. And Peter Beinart now says, look, I, I know we had trouble in Iraq, and I'm not sure my decision was right in the first place. 
But there's one thing I know. We have to stay there for a long, long time. Not just this year, not just next year, but well beyond. And we've got to keep at least 50,000 troops there indefinitely. Funny that Peter comes to that conclusion. I, we asked him on the show. He still hasn't showed up. Because who wins from that semi-permanent occupation of these countries? So obvious. The defense contractors that continue to make more and more money off these wars. Blackwater is about to get a billion-dollar contract, one of many billion-dollar contracts they've got, let alone Boeing and, and Grumman and, and Lockheed Martin and Halliburton, let alone the oil companies that continue to get deals while the Americans uh, are the authority on the ground, let's put it that way, let alone all the other American companies, whether it's a construction company or what other uh, or other services companies that continue to get those deals. They all have a tremendous incentive to stay in Iraq and Afghanistan for frickin' ever. And yet, that money is going out the door and it's being wasted. It's our money, right? But it's not wasted for those guys. Halliburton's made a killing. Blackwater, well, they've literally made many killings, okay? And they continue to. And every year they will come back to you and say, no, you don't understand. All the serious people agree. We have to keep staying in those wars. We fought World War II. We defeated the Nazis and Imperial Japan and, well, Italy, too. <laughs> and all those guys in half the time. Half the time. Come on. It's a joke, man. It's a way to rob us of our money. They took off his clothes. They pissed in his hands. I told them to stop. But then I joined in. We beat him with guns and batons, not just once, but again and again. The hero of war. Yeah, President Obama is to be applauded for having the guts to modify U.S. nuclear weapons policy and for stressing the need to reduce the dangers of nuclear war. His new policy predictably raised the hackles of the right who are claiming that he's jeopardizing our security by not threatening as many nations as possible with nuclear annihilation. Such threats are morally repugnant, needless to say, and it's not like the strategy worked great guns under Bush-Cheney anyway. Their bellicosity only served to speed North Korea along its path to nuclear weapons. Obama's right-wing critics can't seem to get enough of nukes, but as the great anti-nuclear activist Sam Day once told me, unless we get rid of all our nuclear weapons, sooner or later one country or another will use them, causing the deaths of millions, and we'll be left to ask ourselves why we didn't do more to get rid of them when we could. Obama at least recognizes that need, and yes, he can and should do more. He should take all U.S. nuclear weapons off hair-trigger alert for one thing, and for another, he ought to declare a no-first-use policy. But at least Obama's made a start toward a saner world. I wish I could say the same about his right-wing critics. Last time I saw you You can now support this podcast as easily as by shopping online. The next time you need to make a purchase of just about anything, simply visit bestoftheleft.com and use our Amazon.com search box to find what you're looking for. The search box is located right on the side of the website. You can't miss it. When you make your purchase, we get a little commission. It's just another effortless, completely free way for you to help keep the show going strong. Thanks for your support. I really want to tell you about uh, what's happening in Afghanistan and, and how the people in power play the media. This is a great case of it. So there's a, a, a new offensive, of course, that we are doing in, in Afghanistan in the Marja area. And 
It's getting a lot of press, and I found something surprising about it, but I couldn't quite put my finger on what was different about this, right? Because I read this amazing story in the New York Times about how uh, st uh, uh, reporters embedded in, in this uh, group of American soldiers and, and Afghan soldiers fighting in the area, and they're taking heavy fire, and there's snipers in the area, and then you're reading stories about how the uh, Taliban fighters are more nuanced now, and they're better trained, and we're taking some casualties. And so I I'm surprised by this because, one, we haven't seen this level of detailed reporting necessarily all the time, but also it's on the front page. Sometimes we get really great reports about Afghanistan and Iraq, but they're buried in the paper. But now it's front page. And then all of a sudden it's being trumpeted how well the Taliban fighters are fighting and how much trouble we're in in, in, in that particular area as we're doing this offensive. That seems strange to me because usually uh, the media goes with whatever the, you know, the military leaders give them, right? They give them certain information and then the media reports it. Well, the Washington Post had a terrific story about this, which, of course, was buried in the middle of the paper. It was not on the front page, even though you would think that this would be massively relevant. The story was about how the U.S. Uh, commanders are using this battle in Marja to sell the war to us, to the U.S. public. And, that the re and, and so then everything began to fall into place. Oh, I see. And then uh, IPS, Interpress Service News Agency, did a great follow-up story on that, where they explained that uh, McChrystal and Petraeus have been pushing to use Marja as uh, an example of what we can accomplish. Uh, Petraeus had a speech in Istanbul where he talked about this, where we're going to, hey, this battle is now fought as a battle of ideas and winning over the people of Afghanistan, but also winning over the people of the United States. And then the idea is that if they win in Marja, that they then will be able to buy more time so that they will not withdraw in 2011 as Obama stated. That if they can show that they are having some success and some victory, well, then the American people will have more patience in allowing that to develop and for us to stay longer in Afghanistan. So we're getting played here. So now, when you go back to the original stories about how tough it is in Marja and how they're taking so much heat and fire and snipers and this and that, it all makes sense. Why? That's the commanders feeding to the media. Oh, this is a tough battle. I'll tell you what. We got our work cut out for us here. But heroically, a couple of days later or a couple of weeks later, it's going to turn out that we win in Marja. And God, that's a great victory despite all that adversity, right? Now... Why do I say that if I don't, I mean, do I, maybe Marja is a great victory. Maybe it is really hard. Well, here come the other facts involved here. Marja is a town of about 50,000 people. And what a lot of the policy experts have been saying is they don't get it. Why are they going to Marja? First, there isn't much of a battle there. The real battle is in Kandahar. That city is 10 times larger and really where the trouble is and where the Taliban is centered, right? And in fact, we now find out that as we got into Marja, most of the Taliban that were in that area had already retreated. So these ideas of this great Taliban force putting us to the test in Marja is largely, not entirely, there really was gunfire, there were, you know, snipers there, and there really was battles there, et cetera, et cetera, but largely a fiction. Now, how do they create that fiction? This is amazing stuff. See, if they don't want the reporter there, they don't have him there. And all of a sudden, there's no battle, there's no snipers, because the reporter wasn't there to see it, and that doesn't make it into the paper, right? If they want it to seem like, oh, we're in the middle of a fight, they take a reporter and they embed him into the front lines. And all of a sudden, he sees bullets whizzing by. He's like, oh, my God, there's a war here. Well, of course there's a war there. What do you think we've been doing there? Okay? And they create this idea, and then they say to the New York Times, this is an important story. We gave you the, the we let your reporter be the one that's in the front line. You better run in the front. And New York Times gets excited, and they run on the front page. Oh, God, it's brilliant. It really is. So then you will see. You will see the end of this story, okay, because it hasn't uh, fully ended yet. You will see in a couple of days or a couple of weeks that we have heroically won in Marcha, even though it was an enormous battle. And then slowly you will see over time the commanders making the case, oh, I'll tell you what, you know, if you want more success like we had in Marcha, we're going to need more time and, you know, more resources, et cetera, and we're going to have to stay in Afghanistan a little longer.
and that's how you get played. Credit to the Washington Post for running that story. Credit to the Interpress Service News Agency for giving it more background. Uh, but of course, the Washington Post, in its editorial wisdom, did not put that on the front page. A story that is very important, very interesting, and really gives you the true perspective runs in the middle of the newspaper where they hope no one will read it. For now at least, just because they lost, it don't mean it's peace. It's a long way home, it's a lot to think about. Whole generation left in doubt. Innocent families killed in the mist. It'll be more dead people after this. So I'm glad to be alive and walking. Half of my platoon came home and coughing. I sent the general buried in the storm. The bits and pieces, no need to look for them. I played it slick and got away with it. Pick it up so they would think they did it. Now I'm home on reserves and you can bet when they call, I'm going eight war. Cause it ain't no way I'm going back to war. When I don't know who or what I'm fighting for. The video we are about to show you here is graphic and it may be disturbing. Uh, take a look if you want to at video released yesterday, reportedly taken during combat operations in Iraq. Uh, it was reportedly taken from a U.S. attack helicopter. Uh, you're clear. That is just a small portion of a 38-minute video posted online by whistleblowing website WikiLeaks.org. WikiLeaks says it received the classified video and supporting documents from anonymous military sources. The video appears, as you saw, to depict a U.S. military attack helicopter shooting at what the pilots appear to believe are armed insurgents on the streets of Baghdad. After gunning down eight people, the helicopter then shoots at people who emerge from a van to help the people who were wounded in the earlier shooting barrage. But according to the context provided by WikiLeaks, two of the victims were not only not armed insurgents, they were actually journalists for Reuters News Service. The military response to this has been not to deny the authenticity of the video, but to defend the choices made by its troops in this war zone. Here's what the military said after an internal investigation into this incident in 2007. They said that the attack weapons team positively identified the threat, established hostile intent, conducted a collateral damage assessment, and received clearance to fire. And they also say that after only extensive review of the helicopter gun cam video, did they realize that two of the individuals killed may have been reported. Reporters. Nearly three years later, the WikiLeaks video surfaced on the same day that the New York Times published another heart-in-your-throat description of an attack that killed civilians in a war zone. This time in Afghanistan, it was this February, a couple of months ago, during a nighttime raid. Special forces looking for Taliban insurgents fired on two armed men who emerged from their home to investigate. They also shot and killed three women who were standing near one of the men. An investigation by Afghan authorities determined that not only did the U.S. forces kill innocent people in that incident, but they also tried to cover up the deaths, one man claiming that U.S. troops dug bullets out of the women's bodies. Pentagon officials have admitted that the civilians were killed inadvertently, but as to the specific allegation of a cover-up, they have denied attempting to retrieve any bullets from the bodies. Now, the U.S. military has opened another investigation into that Afghanistan incident to try, presumably, to reconcile the widely different stories that are being told about what happened there. What's important about both of these incidents in Iraq and Afghanistan is not just accountability for the individuals involved, necessary, moral, legal, and appropriate as that may be. What's also important is what these incidents mean for Americans, for all of us, and for our national security policy as we contemplate the beginning of year eight in Iraq and the middle of year nine in Afghanistan. What the American government is counting on to win these ongoing wars, the way out we have chosen is counterinsurgency. That's the approach spearheaded by General David Petraeus since 2007 and his protege and successor, General Stanley McChrystal, in Afghanistan since 2008. And what that strategy depends on for success is a lack of civilian casualties. The point of counterinsurgency is 
like the old saw says, to win the hearts and minds of the people, to shore up legitimate authority of the local government and then get the population to side with the government, to side with authorities instead of siding with the insurgency. That's why the exposure of these incidents is important. And critically, the response from the military is important. All eyes on the Pentagon here for their response. Hi, everyone. Now, running this podcast is an absolute passion of mine that I've been pursuing for years. But, of course, everyone understands that it takes a little bit of money to get along in this world. And that's where the members come in. Members sign up and donate as little as $5 a month, which allows me to pump out 10 episodes per month now. So while you're thinking about that and rationalizing that little expense, just realize it breaks down to only 50 cents per episode, and it's even less if you sign up for a full year. And beyond that, in return, you get access to a set of members-only raw feeds, and these deliver audio plus video clips from the show as well as a separate feed just for bonus content that would otherwise end up on the cutting room floor. So for details, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks for your support. The slogan, support the troops, can be a tricky one for me. I oppose war. I oppose the politicians who lead the troops into war, often on false premises. I oppose the corporations that profit from the war that the troops are fighting. But I do want to support the troops, most of them anyway who are putting their lives at risk for this country. And I recognize that many of them are there because we have an unofficial economic draft over here. I want to make sure they've got the best armor and that they're not sent needlessly into harm's way. I want to make sure when they come back that they get the best physical and mental care we got available. And I want to support the vast majority of the troops while they are there those who are serving honorably. But I also recognize that some of our troops don't act honorably and don't deserve to be supported. For instance, the troops at Abu Ghraib who engaged in such brutality, or the troops in the helicopter gunship who shot down the Reuters photographer and driver in Baghdad in 2007, the hideous video of which just became public, or the troops in Afghanistan who killed five civilians, including two pregnant women, and then allegedly carved the bullets out of their bodies to cover up the crime. So the slogan, support the troops, is not an unconditional command. These troops deserve not support, but condemnation. One trillion dollars could buy a lot of bling. One trillion dollars could buy most anything. One trillion dollars buying bullets, buying guns. One trillion dollars in the hands of killers, thugs. Uh, on July 12th of 2007, our troops um, spotted some people that they thought were insurgents, apparently, uh, and fired on them and killed nearly a dozen people on the scene. It turned out that, as far as we can tell, the Iraqis on the scene were not insurgents, although one of them had uh, a weapon. Only one had a gun, okay? Uh, but uh, in the process, a couple of reporters were also killed. A Reuters photographer, Namir Nur al-Din, and his driver, Saeed Chamal, were killed. And you're going to see them getting killed in this video. It was leaked to WikiLeaks, and that's exactly what WikiLeaks is for, to get these kinds of videos. And as you see it unfold and as you see the dialogue, you're going to see why it's particularly brutal uh, in our what appears to be our disdain for human life. Uh, so let's start with the first one. This is where they spot the guys walking down the street. What you'll see is cameras that they're holding, uh, and they're going to mistake that for an RPG. You'll see both how confusing it is and unclear it is, and uh, unfortunately how flippant they seem to be. So let's start with that video first. And there's more that keep walking by, and one of them has a weapon. Roger, receive, Oh, yeah. 
assume weapons absolutely did they seem to make things up like five to six ak-47s which were not the case at all there was only one weapon on the ground uh, at the end yes rpgs didn't exist now at the same time you know you look at that video they're in the middle of a war can you really tell that the camera is not an rpg so i'm tr i'm trying to be fair to both sides i'm trying to see it from both their perspectives what doesn't help their cause of course is the way they are so unbelievably flippant about it. Huh, dead bastards, joking around, nice shot, way to kill them all. Uh, and it seems like a video game. And uh, the problem is, this is how war happens, right? And sometimes it is the bad guys, and sometimes it's not the bad guys. The problem is, you shouldn't have put those guys in the first place. You train them how to kill, you give them these high-tech weapons, and then you say, go in the middle of Iraq, go in the middle of Baghdad, see if you can pick out the good guys and the bad guys, the cameras from the RPGs, shoot them all, and then see what happens. But they're not done yet. One of the guys, in fact, it was the driver, Saeed Chema, who was part of this Reuters crew, starts, is wounded, and he's crawling around. And they keep asking, should we take him out? And you can't take him out, he's wounded, he doesn't have a weapon. And the pilot keeps saying, oh, come on, grab a weapon, grab a weapon, so he could 
have an excuse to shoot him. He doesn't. A van pulls up, a good Samaritan, with two kids inside. They're going to try to bring him to the hospital. Well, that's going to lead to the second disaster of the day. Next clip. Bushmaster, we have a van that's approaching and picking up the bodies. Where's that van at? Right down there by the body. Okay, yeah. Bushmaster, crazy horse. We have individuals going to the scene. Looks like possibly uh, picking up bodies and weapons. I mean, hey, we need to stop that. We get down there. We shoot. video in WikiLeaks, they show the kids in the window of the van. Not fair. I mean, it's, I'm glad they showed it and you see it. Okay, you get it. But it's a black van. They can't see the kids. I couldn't see the kids on the first time around. I'm not blaming them for shooting at the van and there's kids inside. They don't know that there are kids inside. Okay. Now, having said that, I mean, they keep saying, let us shoot. Let us shoot. It's like a video game and they want to kill them, right? But they didn't have any weapons. This time around, they're carrying out the wounded. Even if they're the bad guys, no weapons, carrying out wounded, we execute them. I mean, this is, just because you do it from a helicopter doesn't make it any different. You could have just walked up into the street and shot them in the back of the head. They didn't have any weapons. That would be an assassination. That would be murder. This isn't. In fact, they're calling this video collateral murder on WikiLeaks. And this is what's grotesque about a war. You train these guys who are young guys, generally speaking, on our side, to kill, 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 and then you let them loose in a population where you have no idea if you're killing the right guy or the wrong guy. Now, it gets worse, it gets uglier, because in the next scene, the Bradley fighting vehicles show up, and they're going to laugh about how one of them rolls over a body, one of the dead. Let's watch. Now, before you get too angry at those guys laughing and joking around, too, they have to desensitize themselves to some degree. They're killing people every day, right? And we hope they're mainly killing bad guys. Except you stuck them in a situation that I've said now numerous times where they have no idea if they're killing the bad guys. I wish they would be more restrained, but I'm a million times angry at the people who put them in that position for a war we should have never gotten involved in, never should have gotten into in the first place. And so now the, the last part might make me the angriest. They finally find out, oh my God, we got kids inside the van and they're hurt. Their father, the Good Samaritan, killed, okay? And they got to get the kids out. And the guy on the ground requests an evacuation to our hospital so the kid can get treated. And as you're about to see, that request is denied. Let's watch. Roger, that's a negative uh, on uh, evac and the uh, two civilian uh, uh, kids to uh, Rusty. They're going to have uh, the IPs up. Uh, link up with us over here, break. 
So uh, when their request was denied, and uh, they say that's right. No, uh, you can't take them to our hospital. Wait till the Iraqis show up, and hopefully they'll get to their hospital. Thank God the kids didn't die. What's the point of denying that? I mean, look, we're second-guessing them here. A couple of years later, who knows, maybe our hospital was full, etc. But it didn't seem like they cared an awful lot about the lives of those people down there. And... You know, as you remember, in 06 and 07, Iraq was a disaster area. People killing each other left and right. In the end, hundreds of thousands of civilians died. Some at our hands, but a lot of them in the hands of the militias uh, and the insurgent groups, etc. And in the end, when I see disasters like this that didn't have to happen, I always think, damn it, man. One, there was no weapons of mass destruction. Number two, the inspectors that were looking for the weapons of mass destruction were kicked out by us, by George W. Bush, not by Saddam Hussein. They had no link to 9-11. This war was 100% unnecessary. All those people died because George Bush and Dick Cheney thought, ha, 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 we're going to bring democracy to Iraq. Now, look, they didn't really believe that. If you ask me, you know, Cheney cared about the oil. Bush had his own you know, God fantasies about how he was going to bring democracy and he was going to strike back and be a tough guy against terrorists that didn't exist in Iraq. But the bottom line is the same. They started a war that they should have never started, and they don't seem awfully concerned about all those civilians who died. Does it look like we brought them democracy? Does that look like freedom that we just gave them? So the next time we're going to start a war, can we please think twice. Can you please remember this video? And that once you start the war, that you unleash this hell upon the local population. And so many of them get killed like this because, oh, I don't know, was it a camera? Was it an RPG? Let's kill them all and make sure. The crimes of Bush and Cheney in starting this war should never be forgotten. Thanks for listening, everyone. There's a little bit of citizen activism going on I wanted to let you know about. Now, the the very first clip of today's show was by Citizen Radio, and in recent weeks I've started using clips from their show. Somehow, I don't know how, these guys uh, slipped under my radar. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't even know how long they've been doing their show, years though, and apparently they have a huge following but I was not among their following until very recently when they were recommended to me by a listener via Twitter, which I actually shamefully never replied and, and thanked them for, for that. They actually suggested the, the Bugle and Citizen Radio at the same time and turned out to be two home run suggestions, two shows that I love now. So anyways, Citizen Radio, check them out at wearecitizenradio.com. But beyond that, uh, I want to talk about the fact that they have launched a campaign to try to get Obama to come on their show and just answer some questions basically to his own base. And, you know, that's that's the whole concept of it is they are, you know, were and are huge supporters of him, but are disappointed in the way some of his campaign rhetoric has uh, kind of fallen by the wayside and things have gone in some cases, drastically different than promised. So the idea is, Obama, please come on the show so that you can inspire us to support you again. I mean, you know, they, they want to help the guy out. So they've launched a campaign, and since uh, my whole gig is supporting other you know great progressive voices that I enjoy, I thought I would uh, take up this banner and, and help promote their campaign a little bit. So here are the basics for you. Uh, you know, first of all, their show is at wearecitizenradio.com. So you, hopefully you will be able to find details on this campaign there, but I'll verbalize it anyways. Uh, you can get the spellings of their names on their website. If you want to follow them on Twitter, all, this whole campaign is happening via Twitter. And, and the way it works, if you're not familiar with the system, 
you can send messages basically to the White House and uh, and like the White House press secretary and to the Barack Obama Twitter account, and you can make your plea and send that message to them. And the idea is if they can get thousands and thousands of people sending this message uh, on a regular basis, then it'll create enough pressure that they'll actually take notice and uh, accept the invitation to come on the show. So, you know, it's it's really simple. The message that they want everyone to send is just tell President Obama to remember his base and say yes to Q&A with Citizen Radio and then it's tagged O and CR meaning you know like the letter O the word and the letters C and R meaning Obama and Citizen Radio and then that message is being sent to the at Barack Obama at White House and at press secretary so if you're interested in getting involved with that I mean basically the concept is is not so much supporting this show you know this particular show citizen radio it the idea is to get obama to answer to his supporters you know fundamentally the people who got him elected come talk to us so i think it's a good cause um i'm taking taking up the cause myself and um hope you will too i forget if i already said their names but it's allison kilkenny and jamie kilstein who are the two hosts of that show so both of them are on Twitter with those names. So for all other details regarding this uh, campaign, uh, direct your questions to them. Now, speaking of supporting independently produced uh, progressive media, I want to thank a couple of members who are making this show possible. Melissa A. signed up for her uh, membership on February 10th, and Scott M. signed up uh, going above and beyond the regular membership amount and, and signed up for a full year in advance on March 17th. Huge thanks to those members and all the members who make the show possible. You guys know that I just couldn't do it without you, and I, I assume that those uh, warm sentiments help keep you uh, warm at night. Of course, now with this Twitter campaign, there's no better time to get signed up on Twitter to join in. As long as you're doing that, you might as well follow this show at twitter.com slash left or the old standby facebook.com slash left. Join up and just declare yourself a fan of the show and you can get uh, messages between episodes and become part of the conversation that's happening over there all sorts of funds being had for all the details on the show including links to all the sources and all the music used in the show all of that is always listed in the show notes on the blog so coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of the washington dc beltway my name is jay and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you 10 times a month now thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Just a fun.